good Wednesday morning, and today we are here with Dr. John Patrick. Well, actually, what do you want to talk about today, John? Well, I've been thinking about the people who really matter to me as writers who are not Christian. What I like about serious, honest intellectuals is that they normally come to a point where they see the benefits of faith, even though they don't have them themselves. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been plodding our way through thinking about some of these things using Genesis as a base. And uh, the patriarchs, uh, to use that lovely word, which is so unpopular with so many people, but nevertheless a description of the history of the world, um, Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, Joseph, um, they took a, a while to learn what God was doing in their lives. Um, they got on with things. Uh, I mean, Jacob would be a modern businessman for most of his life, so to speak. Uh, Abraham didn't really start getting to know who God was until he was, you know, well on. And he was reminded along the way in various quite painful ways that he was in a bigger story than he understood. Um, Jordan Peterson uh, is a, another example of someone who can see the benefits of faith. I mean, he looks at the literature, he knows perfectly well uh, that people who believe have more contented lives, perhaps not the most exciting, but that's up to them. Uh, but if you want to hand something on to your children, the best thing you can do is be in a heterosexual marriage that is committed to God. Uh, the outcomes are stellar compared to everybody else. Um, David Stove, the Australian uh, philosopher who hated any sort of dissembling and untruth, and uh, wrote Darwinian fairy tale, saying basically the problem with the Darwinian story is it doesn't deal with a central issue for us, which is moral truth. Um, Jordan Peterson's book that was so popular, uh, it amazed me because when I looked at it, I thought, well, there's not really anything new here. And of course, that's true. We're always rediscovering what was known for a long while. But uh, that set me thinking on where we've got to in the last few weeks, because my sequence of questions that matter wouldn't be quite the same. Um, I, I was having my eyes tested yesterday, and I don't know quite how it came up even, but um, I said to the young woman who was doing some of the preliminary tests, we were talking about her family, and, she, and I asked her what the lockdown had done to her kids, and she said, well, it's astonishing. He said, she got a, uh, one in the mid-twenties, uh, one sort of primary school and one in between. She said, the, the one in between is f ahead of the one who's in his twenties. It's all getting screwed up one way or another. And uh, we the, the conversation went on and I said, well, from my point of view, the problem is that we, we don't teach our children what the big questions are, let alone the answer. The oldest writings we've got always go back to the same questions. Where do I come from? Where am I here? Where am I going? Suffering, death. How can I believe in justice in a world like ours? How do I know something is true? What ought I to do? How ought I to live? Uh, nobody can claim authorship for those questions in one form or another. They've been around since 
writing began. And here we are in the 21st century with the people who educate trying to pretend those Christians have no power. They don't last for the whole of recorded history and have no power. And she immediately said, of course. An ordinary person in an ordinary setting, confronted with a way of thinking that she'd not come across before, said, of course. And our problem uh, that underlies the reason for this podcast in many ways is that Christians have become so timid. Here we have in our hands a package which historically has served us incredibly well. Judeo-Christian thought with a little spice from the Greeks really explains everything that's been successful in the world in the last, certainly the last 500 years. That's not something to be ashamed of. It's something to say, well, look at it. Is this what you want? I mean, the people who are complaining about colonialism uh, fail to recognize that we were colonized too. You know, everybody's been colonized by somebody at some point or another. The only point about Africa is we didn't go there very much because it was a hard place for other people to go to for a long while. So, yeah, they were the last to get hammered in that way. But it's the way history turned out. And frankly, I'm very glad that the Romans came to uh, to England because we were painting ourselves blue when we went into battle and dying by the age of 40, you know. Um, the Romans changed that. They didn't intend to, but they provided the way for the gospel to spread and civilization to spread. Um, so the first it's worth looking at how they came to that point of view so that we as christians instead of going away and singing happy songs on sunday morning and allowing ourselves to be labeled idiots we could start talking a bit more seriously about what has actually happened and the first question in the beginning what i mean genesis straight up front in the beginning god or no god that those are the options, and this is a zero-sum. Most zero-sums are not zero-sums. It's the, one of the other errors of the modern young who think if somebody's got rich, it must always be at somebody else's expense. No, uh, that's not true. How we actually create wealth is a very interesting question, but we have, it certainly happened in my lifetime. I mean, when I was a kid, we lived on six pound a week, less than 20 bucks. Think, think what's happened to the wealth in the world since then. Everybody who grew up in England, who's my age and following that, are richer than their parents were in material terms, but not so rich in other terms. It's beginning to, and that's beginning to come home to haunt us. Uh, even the green people, in a sense, have this utopian dream, which we need to be able to deconstruct. So in the beginning, God is, is a perfectly rational starting point that somewhere, looking around this world, even looking outside my window at the moment, uh, and watching the birds, there are amazing things, that the more you study them, the more they blow your mind. That, that, that there's a mind behind the universe, not unreasonable. In fact, of course, several serious atheistic philosophers at the end of their life, in the end, admitted there's a mind behind the universe. The, the most recent pair being Anthony Flew and uh, 
uh, Nagel, uh, and they got they got hammered for it. Whereas serious Christian philosophers all the way through, like Plantinga, uh, the critics wisely leave Alvin Plantinga alone because they know they won't beat him. So, and of course, our community who ought to celebrate Alvin Plantinga by and large don't even know his name, right? Is that true of you? That would be true. Do you know who he is? I don't. Heard the name? No. Um, Doesn't ring a bell. He's not easy to read, but my goodness, he's, he's smart, very smart. So, in the beginning, God is not unreasonable. In the beginning, no God re- leaves you really stuck because, okay, let's go and look at the parts of the world where no God is the norm in any practical sense. Well, that's the pagan world. I spent some years there <clears throat> before I understood the reason they have malnourished children is they have no hope that it can change. Hope is one of the things that comes from a belief in a God, especially when he tells you, you're not going to like this story quite frequently, but my objective is that you should become suitable people to live with me forever. But there's a learning program necessary for that. Um, and it's, it's tough and he makes no bones about it. God does things on purpose every time, for a purpose, and the purpose is ultimately to bring us into a love story with him. Uh, that's That gives you reasons to cope with all the struggles that come your way. And people are not coping at the moment, are they? I mean, the, the young in particular have been so hammered by the mismanagement of COVID. They are hopeless, really, seriously. And we have a story that can bring hope back into their lives, but we're not telling it very well. So, in the beginning, what is the first question we need to ask, or who? Uh, Our friends that we care about, people we work with and interact with. They need to wake up. They're like zombies, and the gospel, the story can come along. That we are creatures. Uh, the evidence for that is growing. I mean, one of the, the great things that's happened in my lifetime is uh, people in the molecular biology area, um, they don't want to talk about this anymore. They haven't quite got to where the cosmologists and the quantum physicists have got, where they talk about God all the while and say, OK, well, we need shorthand, you know. Um, we do the physics as though there isn't a God, but you, you can't help thinking about it and writing books about it. Um, and now the same thing inevitably is happening in molecular biology because it's just so stunning that there's a message in every cell in your body three three billion odd letters long two meters if you stretch it out but God is so good at origami he can pack it in a cell you can't see with so you can't see it till you get modern microscopes and even then you can't see the details of that message but it's a message, and you can't begin to think about messages without thinking about message writers. Uh, when you tell them next that it's a coded message, uh, I mean, it blows the mind. You win, you win that battle every time. And then you come to the chemistry, same thing. The, the, the gap between the inorganic world and the organic world is unbridgeable. And the more the details of what goes into the specific formation of molecules blowing the mind anybody who doesn't who doesn't know about this just go and listen to james tour uh, from 
uh, what's the name of the university in Houston, Rice. Um, he's very, very good on this. Uh, uh, born in a Jewish family, grown up and uh, wasted his time for a while and then became a Christian and things fell into place and he's incredibly productive. But talking about this, he's winsome and he can communicate the complexities of what he's doing uh, to any thoughtful person, even not very thoughtful person. Uh, so that one is also over. The idea that we're, cre we're creatures, let's face it, it looks as though we are. If you don't believe anything except molecular biology uh, as being true, it's not an unreasonable conclusion to draw from what you're looking at. Um, Michael Denton's whole series of books over what he's been writing for over 25 years now, um, starting with uh, Nature's Destiny. No, that wasn't the first. Evolution of Theory in Crisis. He likes putting it to the opposition, which he wrote over 25 years ago, but he's written four or five books now. Every time looking at the sheer complexity of uh, biology and biochemistry and saying, how do you handle this? So if the Christian mind is going to come alive, which it has to, I mean, that's what we tried to do at Augustine College and COVID has set us back. Now I think we've probably got to go back to parents. Uh, I'd be interested if people listening to this podcast would uh, respond to this in some way, um, if there's anyone listening. Um, I think my job now is, is to help parents to set the table so that their, the intellectual table, so that their children would at least be open to coming to do, to take part in what we do, and then to clone something like it in every, every city uh, in, in, on the continent. In fact, every church could be the basis for a little bit of this. Uh, I'm going to do a, a series in uh, Pennsylvania in March, I think it is, in a church. Uh, and I'm going to use that opportunity to talk about how do we train the minds of our children? How do we prepare their minds for the world in which they have to live uh, so that faith is central to it, not peripheral to it? Use it as a foundation stone. Lewis's very simple statement, and I think the end of the first chapter of the abolition of man, if nothing can be assumed, nothing can be proved. Something has to be self-evidently true. And what is increasingly self-evidently true from what we're doing is that we're creatures. That creation happened. Um, and so that's where we would start from. Now the Jews, when Jesus came, at least they accepted that. But they thought they could do it on their own. We keep the law and God will come but they've never managed it and never will. What Jesus did when he, the Sermon on the Mount was to demolish that approach. He said, yeah, the law has been very good for you and we'll get to talking about that in a little bit, but it's, you, you're not gonna become perfect by knowing the law because you can't do it. As Paul put it beautifully later in one of my favorite uh, what's aphorisms in the New Testament, the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We are we. One of the things that we, we come into this world with is moral knowledge, and 
but we we know what's good and true and we try to do it but we always fail at one level or another we make progress in various ways but uh, it's one step forward and two back quite frequently uh, you see what's happening in war wherever it happens happening in Ukraine uh, absolutely awful brutality on both sides we're a fallen creature so once you've got to God as the first thing and then recognize that you're a creature uh, then the next thing is to help children to look at nature and understand this is beautiful they have it it's the easiest thing in the world to do with them I mean we live on a farm and I have lots of grandchildren but the first opportunity of the year for the young ones um, the first the first joy of a, a new growing season for me is a tiny little uh, grass it's called blue-eyed grass and the flower is mm, a few millimeters across it's worth looking at with a magnifying glass it is so exquisitely beautiful and when it grows in clumps uh, it's a lovely blue like the Scylla blue of early spring as well but children uh, you only have to show it to them uh, you don't have to tell them what response to have they have it spontaneously that's beautiful it's it's written in our souls you never see an animal stop and look at blue-eyed grass they only they're only looking to see whether they can eat things uh, what's different about us is the next thing on this list uh, we can appreciate that goodness because according to our story we are made in the image of God now the image of God what is it it it's not material as John puts it in his gospel God is pure spirit and that those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth so here we come across the fundamental difference between us and all the animals. Yes, you, you may teach some of the higher apes to have some material words for material things like food that they will get and they'll make a sound that you train them to say because then they get a banana or whatever. But they're never going to have any abstract world, any imaginary world, any world of metaphor. It's not available to them. They're a bunch of instincts. I mean, every now and again, when we, we we don't have cows on the farm anymore at the moment, but at this time of year, the calves would be coming along, and every now and again, a stupid calf would get in the way when you were putting a big bale out, and all the cows came hurrying along. They could get trampled. We'd lose a, a, a calf every now and again. Now, you couldn't imagine humans doing that. You don't trample on a young. Uh, but and the mother is yeah a little bit upset for a, a little while and then it's over um, and life goes on N no imaginary world no world of the spirit uh, that's where our morality comes from and it it's hardwired we're made in that way and at the heart of God is goodness truth beauty all those things so our children when they come into the world they have those concepts and we only have to 
Our job is just to bring them to life. And that's what Leon cast us so well in his discussion of Genesis. He's on his way back to faith. He's not a believer. I, I don't know whether he is by now, but certainly when he wrote that book, he wasn't. And he's honest about it at the beginning. So he wants to understand why his parents and grandparents gave up a way of understanding that had kept the Jews alive without a country for thousands of years. And they, they more than survived. Wherever they went, they made progress. That's astonishing. We couldn't run our own banking system. The Jews had to do it for a long, long while. Um, I'm sorry about that buzz in the background. Uh, I hope it doesn't disturb you too much. Oh, it stopped. That's good. Um, so we need to get people to think their way through these things a bit more. Certainly, if you, for any grandparent listening, listen to the first things your grandchildren say and watch for the first thing they say that involves an immaterial thing like love or beauty or truth or something like that, fairness, justice. My favourite, as I've said on this podcast before, is not fair. A philosopher could write a book on that title, but a child who hasn't yet got the capacity to make a grammatical sentence understands that concept. He's getting a cookie, I should get a cookie. On what grounds? Because it's right. Where did that come from? No animal behaves that way. We're the only one. So this would be about number four on my list of uh, the rules of life. In the beginning, God, creation, a good creation, the Imago Dei. And then, of course, what Chesterton said is surely the one Christian doctrine that needs no proof. The fall. Look at your own life, look at your children. We all know it. In that lovely phrase, I think at the end of the third chapter of Orthodoxy, he says, we all know that we are the survivors of a colossal wreck that went down at the beginning of time. It's a lovely picture in one sentence. Uh, the first fixed and real characteristic that we have is that we couldn't help but screw up in paradise. And if we'd been there, we would have done the same. Because along with those good things, there's hierarchy. And you see how hierarchy really upsets people today. Uh, Jordan Peterson constantly gets into trouble from the feminists about hierarchy, uh, to which his response is basically, get used to it, it's the way everything is. And that's true. So Milton put it in the, into the, uh, the speech of the devil when after the fall from heaven, he said, better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. And the basic sin of the Garden of Eden is we wanted to be autonomous. We wanted to be God and Satan played that card beautifully and we swallowed it and we've been paying ever since now. God obviously knew about that because uh, in the long term, instead of being full of envy, which we are so easily, we will be full of delight at the whole structure of everything. 
won't it won't be an issue we'll, we won't be bothered by this self-conscious comparison stuff that we do all the while i think that will be the real joy of heaven that's over gone finished no space for that anymore and um, that would make an entirely different world we've no idea what it would be like uh, we get some sense of it now with all these people who being resuscitated for a long long period and have out-of-body experiences and uh, when they come back they're astonishing uh, and they have such a degree of uh, continuity there's all sorts of little clues popping up i think god is sort of giving one shake of the last shake of the the story to see if people will wake up i don't know whether they will or not and of course it's our job to wake them up I mean, in his first sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus says is, what I'm talking to you about now is how you become an effective disciple who can be properly described as the source of salt and light in the world. Now, America has, uh, the, the liberals love to make fun of Massachusetts and the Puritans who wanted America to be the city set on a hill that is the way Jesus illustrates the function of light a city that is built on a hill cannot be hid you are to be like that people are to see your good works and be drawn to your father in heaven that's our job but before that interestingly he puts salt before light and we don't think about salt very well because uh, we immediately have the picture of that white stuff that you can shake out of a, a container of any sort um, but that's not the salt that Jesus was talking about and that's not pure sodium chloride if it was it would be a solid rock in no time at all it has to have uh, other things put into it to make it run as it does to keep it dry so to speak um, but salt was is not widely deposited around the world and it's much needed uh, for two reasons i mean it's it's in the sea but if you're inland uh, there are a few major deposits of salt around the world uh, and it was so valuable that you could be paid in salt and the word in latin for salt is salaire from which we get salary you get the point uh, so when you draw your salary you're drawing your salt and it was valuable you could trade it for other things or whatever or you could use it yourself now its primary functions were two one was to preserve what is good and the other by the same token to destroy what is bad particularly food so at the end of the the summer the beginning of fall the housewife would need to salt down some fish and some meat for the winter uh, and off to the market she would go to get her salt and a good businessman would make sure that his sack of salt was very salty at the top because it salt was of different qualities depending on how much dirt it had got in it the the other the silicates and the aluminum salts and all the rest and how much sodium chloride it had got now so she'd buy a good sack of salt she thought but if that sack had been standing outside his shop and there'd been a sudden torrential downpour in the summer and the bottom couple of inches of that sack had been underwater for a few minutes 
that would mean the bottom of the sack when it dried out would look the same. If you want an analogy of why perception is not everything, this is it. For a sack of salt, perception is no use at all if it's rock salt. So the sodium chloride, the bit that does all the work, very water-soluble, gone from the bottom. But when it dried out, the sack would look the same as it did before. Might have to fill it up a tiny bit at the top, but not much, because the salt's not a large part of the components in the sack. So the housewife would start putting her fish, salt, fish, salt. She'd get tired of tasting. And a few weeks later, one of her salted down containers would start to smell very nasty. Did she blame the salt or did she blame the fish? She blamed the salt. You see what Jesus is saying to us as Christians in that point. If you are my disciple, you are to be salty. You are to be an affront to what is evil. They will hate you for that, but that's one of the things you have to do. Say, that's not right. We must change it. And time and time again, that has happened. Your country has got plenty of examples of that. Uh, the first country in the world to get rid of slavery was England. and It was driven entirely by the Christian motif. Uh, the discussions of slavery at the moment are so bad because they have no history at all. If you don't know how to talk about it, listen to Tom Sowell on slavery. He's got every right to talk about it black and he does it brilliantly. Uh, every culture that we know anything about practice slavery in one form or another. It's in the Bible, etc., etc. Uh, there's nobody who's innocent in this world. So, when things go badly wrong, when you wake up in the morning and there's been a terrible crime, we say, oh, those people, they must be so bad. But then the next Christian thought should be, what have we failed to do? Where Christianity takes deep root, cultures improve. The norms of culture improve. Uh, I've seen that in my lifetime and I've seen its decay as well. And I've watched it begin to grow in places where uh, the, the Judeo-Christian story has only penetrated relatively recently. The thing that we as particularly evangelicals get wrong is that we think that conversion changes everything overnight, but it doesn't. What conversion does is change your status in God's sight. You are seen as brought into the kingdom by the sacrifice of Christ, but it doesn't make you a good person the next day, does it? We go on with our old sins regularly. I mean, I still struggle with sins I've had since I was a teenager every now and again. We all do that. We know that we don't have to do it. That's what the Bible teaches. You are not necessarily under the power of sin, but you can't do it. You need me to help you. Uh, that's why we, we don't talk about this enough in church. I, I make this point frequently by misquoting St. Paul. I find that misquoting the Bible while you're preaching is a very good thing to do uh, because you can watch the audience and see whether or not they wake up. And um, usually they don't. So I will say this. Paul says in writing to one church, 
The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who have been saved, it is the power of God. And then I look at them and I say, hmm, see you don't understand that. I have just trashed the intellectual history of the Christian world in one sentence and you don't seem to care. Would you like a second try? So I do it again and then I do it correctly and not everybody gets it immediately. The correct one would be um, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That tense is critical. Paul, all the way through, is more interested in praying for people when they have become Christian, in a sense, than before they become Christian, because he understands that the Holy Spirit is the only person that brings us into the faith. But then we are left with the problem of working out what it means and how it works. And that is the process of being saved week by week. And if I was a pastor, which I'm not, I mean, the church would be empty in a week or two with me as a pastor. But one of the things I would do is I would ask on Sunday morning, I want to hear prayers from the congregation describing how you have experienced salvation in your life this week. Where has God worked in your life to move you a little bit closer to what he wants you to be? Are you being saved as a present continuous thing? That's what Paul wants. He, he writes to Ephesians and says, ah, it's really worth praying for you. I hear how you're beginning to love one another. That's really good. Let's get to work on that. And in every case in the epistles, he, he sees a particular trouble in a church uh, so the epistles are all written on purpose for particular reasons. And then he, he says, OK, what are we going to do about this? And uh, his view is that if I teach some, some theology with that in mind, uh, that can do the job. So you get about three quarters or more of the epistle on theology. And then at the end... He teaches a very brief ethics course. You couldn't run an ethics course on what Paul has to say about ethics because it's a fabrication of the intellectual mind. He says, now, if you've understood what I'm saying to you, this means you've got to settle your marital divisions peaceably. Uh, you've got to love your spouse, love your children, and pay your servants daily for the servants. Uh, that's a pretty simple outline of life but that's what it is that's what it's about so going back to Genesis Paul of course deeply steeped in this stuff there's nothing there's no word from Adam in the first story I'm sure he's totally overwhelmed by finding himself alive and not understanding himself at all uh, then God teaches him a bit about his capacities by bringing the animals to him to name them and he realizes he he has naming characteristics that he can look at animals and begin to see relationships which is the beginning of intellectual activity but it's not until he's made to see eve as what she's meant to be and suddenly he says wow he's overwhelmed when he's struck by love um but there's no detailed training uh, before the fall, they had a relationship with God. He walked with them, is the metaphor, in the garden in the cool of the day. 
and pointed out that they could eat of everything except two trees, and of course, that's the metaphor for the fall. Um, and they fell. And when he puts them out into uh, the world, all that they've got is that they are uh, to look at, they are to care for the world. They're going to have to grow their food by the sweat of their brow, and they're going to have to populate the world, and that will be painful every now and again for the woman. The guy has to sweat every day. Uh, the woman has to sweat for longer and worse every few months or so. Um, that's all they've got, plus this moral knowledge which is written in their heart. They know what good and evil is, so that when God comes to Cain, he says, evil is crouching at the gate and you must control it. He doesn't say he's going to do anything about it. He's going to teach him through it. But it's his job to do something about it. And of course, he fails, as we all do. Um, and there are consequences. So the next step in the training that has to go along Again, we try and avoid because we don't like consequences. Our world tries to pretend that they're not built in, but they are. Everything we do has consequences, particularly everything in the moral world. Uh, consequence is what the Jews teach to their children. Uh, and we need to do it a lot more. Uh, they are taught to do it later on, and we'll, we'll get to that probably in a week or two's time. But uh, if you're wanting to think what it involves, I, I give you a foretaste. The essence of Jewish history is very different from every other history in the world. All the rest of us tart up our heroes to make them good people. Robin Hood was a thug, but we made him into an icon of virtue and social justice. Uh, some of your founders were not the nicest of men, but they did a good job in many ways. You were blessed with your, your founding fathers uh, because the best of them understood that what was happening uh, was a gift of what had already happened before. John Adams' favorite, famous line that our constitution is for a religious people. It is wholly unsuited to any other. And even Ben Franklin, who didn't live the most upright of lives at the beginning of the meetings in uh, Philadelphia, said we'd better pray at the beginning because we'll if this doesn't go right, we will certainly swing together. So let's start by praying together. And the basic premises of what constituted a good world were understood by your founders in a way that if the modern guys took over, they wouldn't. I mean, they put together a constitution which is all, almost unworkable. We have three components to it. Uh, the Senate, the House of Representatives, and uh, the Executive, uh, and the law. So you've got the Senate and the, and the political people, you've got the Executive in the White House, and you've got the uh, the judges and that could work because they realized that since we're all sinners and they all nobody would argue against that when you were being founded 
the biggest problem is go for us is going to be people who abuse the system for their own ends. We won't be able to stop it, but we must make it as difficult as possible. So uh, you're going to see in the next little while, starting in the new year, that working out because Biden and company cannot rule without the agreement of the Republicans. So you're seeing your constitution work as it should, forcing them to find common ground uh, and having to agree that where we don't disagree, those things have to go on the back burner. They'll come back again in another two years time, perhaps. Uh, and it worked brilliantly. See, everywhere else, uh, it doesn't. The Western world, it did. And the reason it works so well, of course, is also common law, which you got from Britain. And common law is an incredible human construct. It goes right back to the time of King Alfred, when even traveling around a small place like Britain was difficult, and he unified everything up to the Scottish border. But now there was the problem of what to do about justice. And Alfred was one of our most Christian kings. He, he translated some of the Bible into the vernacular for his people. And he wisely, he said, well, um, as in the founding of America, you had to run on a, a, a local area for many things. You're a big country, and the only way you could get around it was horseback or a little later trains. Roads didn't come to much later. So congregational and community was forced on you in that process. And that's what the cowboy films show you something about, if you're willing to think about it. But... Um, Common law, Alfred said, you have to go, he chose wise men, he said, you have to go out and hear the hard cases. And when you get there, first of all, you say, what would your community intuitively think they would do? And that's where you start. So 12 just men and true was the basic rule. Now, you could have your codified law, but though the, the point about common law is codes are blunt instruments. When you write things down, you don't know all the situations that are going to come up. So common law is an absolutely brilliant way to change that. It wasn't written in stone, and some of your people seem to think the Constitution... No, it's not written in stone, because you have common law too. Uh, you, you in, you've taken it over with, for good reason. So they would say, ah, oh, yeah, but all these other things come into it. No, we're not going to punish this guy for what happened. Yeah, what he did was wrong, but it was driven to it, etc., etc. And so you build up case law over time, which civilizes a community and gives you a very nuanced approach to justice. Because justice is a really big problem. Uh, and we're getting into trouble in all these areas because, for instance, no law school that I'm aware of has a real uh, philosophy course on the nature of justice. Medicine doesn't have a course on the nature of medicine. Now, uh, the, for the lawyers, the problem is without a lawgiver above the judges, you have a problem with inevitable conflict of interest. If I was running the system, the first thing I would do would be to say lawyers cannot sit in Congress uh, making the law. I wouldn't mind them so much in the Senate, but uh, because they have an obvious conflict of interest. 
they make their money out of the law. So they write laws that will employ lawyers. Uh, you see it all the while. The medicine uh, began long before we had it. We had no effective treatment really until the 1860s. It wasn't until then that it was actually a good idea to go to the doctor uh, when you felt you were ill, uh, if you wanted to survive, because going to the doctor was not correlated with a longer life, in rather the opposite, because some of the treatments were bad. It's almost certain that George Washington was killed by being bled too much by his doctor. Uh, these things happen, but the intent was not evil. So I usually say to doctors, there are four things you need to think about. You need to think about judgment after death, because logically, you cannot trust a doctor as much if he thinks there's nothing after death than if he thinks he will be judged. That's why it's dangerous. Euthanasia and abortion, whatever else you think about them, you should say not doctors. It's not intrinsically medical, and it's intrinsically a source of conflict of interest for people who want their own way. And you could teach people to do both those things in six weeks with ease. You don't need to go to medical school for six years uh, to do them. And it, they are the people who should do it. They, they can't recruit. Uh, you'd have to think that one through a bit more, but at least don't contaminate medicine with it. And once doctors start to, to kill, it's inevitable that it will spread to where it shouldn't. And it's already happening. The death rates are going up by killing. So uh, all the things they said at the beginning, they're now killing children. Uh, they decide are going to have a life not worth living. That would mean Helen Keller, for instance, if she, instead of getting an infection and coming to the world blind and deaf, she would have been killed. But America would be better off without a Helen Keller. God knows what he's doing, even in that area. And I spent my life with those children that the modern liberal wants to kill at birth or stop them being born in the first place. These are not little things. They're being taught step by step. So from uh, the expulsion from the garden, uh, there's no laws beyond the ones that are written on our hearts and experience over time. Uh, and of course, it doesn't, we don't do well. We're smart and we're dangerous. So it gets to Babel and they've decided they're going to outsmart God, a symbol of their uh, non-requirement of God. And God says, that's enough. And that's where, according to the biblical story, he confused their languages. Now, up until then, certainly for nomadic Jews, life was the immediate family and clan. Uh, tribe, they just about made to nation. No, that came later. Uh, but once the languages were separated out, then you had a base for nationalism. And the people who intuitively recognized that, as you did early on, um, you can't, language enshrines all sorts of cultural norms. And if they aren't shared, you don't have a nation. You have a collection of people who come together for their own reasons. And that's what we have in the modern world. The modern, given the huge immigration processes that are going on, people migrate primarily for economic and political reasons. They 
they don't migrate into a story that's better thinking of it that way and we don't even ask them to think about it that way which we should do I mean if if you believe there is no meaning beyond this life you will have a very materialistic culture and it will be very competitive and nasty and the politics unless you're very well set up which you're currently blessed with in the United States but uh, it's open season for tyranny and we're having that preached to us by Putin and Xi in China uh, over the next little while and it, it's time for us as Christians to talk about these things think about these things so that we can encourage the conversation there are people having them but the people are doing it like Douglas Murray for instance uh, was a Christian gave it up now says he's 99% back but he's not back he was a homosexual but uh, I don't know whether he's still practicing even uh, but he's honest about what he wants to see happen uh, The War on the West is a book that every evangelical Christian should read and the madness of crowds uh, simply to wake you up and say you've got work to do if you want your children to live in a world that's anything like the one you have. And I think at that point we should stop because we're going to have a knock on the door as people arrive in about eight minutes' time. Thank you, Dr. John, and thank you guys all for listening. If you have a question that you want Dr. John to answer for you, you can write that at www.johnpatrick.ca forward slash ask, or you can find that link in the description below. Thank you guys so much, and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.